This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. We are finding that the best time to control many fall annual weeds with herbicide is in the fall. This time of year, they are small and don't seem like much, but once they bolt in the spring, they can be hard to kill. Two of our main winter annuals that are hard to control are henbit and mare's tail, but pennycrest, dandelions, downy brome, and many others can be problematic in winter annuals in the field. Mare's tail is prevalent here in eastern Kansas, and this weed has been finding its way into herbicide resistance weed list. We mostly think of henbit as a wheat weed, although henbit stays small in the spring, it can be hard to plant through and can shade young corn seedlings. In pastures, now is a good time to control must thistles as well. With our recent rains and warm soils, we have great conditions for winter weeds to germinate. Currently, the winter weeds are still germinating, so waiting to spray during a mild stretch in November can be ideal. They are small and inconspicuous, but they are there. It is a good idea to include, with a burn down, a residual herbicide to get coverage into the spring. This time of year, the soils are cooler, so the residuals last a little longer as well. For burn down, glyphosate, 2,4-D, and dicamba are some of the main options. However, right now it can be hard to find some chemicals, and the prices have gone up considerably. Group 1 herbicides like Clothrium, the herbicide in Select, and Quasiflop, the herbicide in Assure, can be used to control grasses. Broadleaves can include Periquat or Sulfuron, the herbicide in Sharpen. For residual, Atrazine is cheap and effective, however it can only be used if the plant is a plant corn or sorghum in the spring. Atrazine has some rate and location restrictions as well. It can be mixed with 2,4-D, Dicamba, or Sharpen to provide a better control of mare's tail. Atrazine doesn't control brome or volunteer wheat once they have tillered, so it should be mixed with glyphosate or an AMS adjunct. For soybeans, fall herbicides includes 2,4-D, Dicamba, Sharpen, Valor XT, and others. The addition of glyphosate can help control winter grasses. Some weeds, especially mare's tail, can have herbicide resistances to glyphosate, atrazine, or ALS herbicides like Valor and Classic. It is important to use herbicides with different modes of action and to follow herbicide label instructions on rate of usage. Another issue is that residual herbicides eventually lose their effectiveness and will control weeds in the summer months. Most residual herbicides last longer during the winter months, but effectiveness is reduced when soil temperatures, biological activity, and moisture increases. How long the residuals last will depend on the winter weather, and a spring application of residuals could be needed. Currently, winter annuals are moving their carbohydrates into their roots preparing for winter. Spraying them now will cause the plant to move the herbicides into the roots as well, giving a much more effective kill. For more information or for controlling winter annuals and crops, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Cooper with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Wendy Powell, your livestock production agent for the Wildcat Extension District. There's nothing like a refreshing drink of water to hydrate the body. But what happens when the only available water is frozen? As livestock producers, managing herds in freezing temperatures can really make you dread the weather forecast. Now, or perhaps a week ago, is the time to make sure watering systems are set up for full-time access to clean, drinkable water. Livestock will sure drink more water in warmer temperatures by 50 to 100 percent, 
but water is the one nutrient that if animals go without, then trouble happens quickly. Dehydration, especially in cold temperatures, is difficult to monitor, but more than a few days can make a huge impact on health and productivity. Cattle will typically drink about a gallon of water per day for every 100 pounds. A dry cow needs 8 to 10 gallons, but a lactating cow needs twice that. A horse weighing about 1,000 pounds needs 10 to 12 gallons, and sheep and goats need 1 to 3 gallons daily. Animals can use snow as their source of hydration. Here in southeast Kansas, our annual snowfall is unpredictable at best, but still usually less than 12 inches, with accumulation varying. Animals will consume soft snow, but snow that is melted and refroze is not nearly as edible. Research out of Canada shows that livestock body temperatures efficiently thaw snow. There's no metabolic difference observed between animals given snow or water. Consider the size of the tank needed to keep the water flowing ice-free. Animals are more likely to drink from water sources when the water is moving. That may mean investing in frost-free watering systems. This can be expensive, but the savings in time and labor may be well worth it. Breaking ice is labor-intensive, not to mention a safety hazard. And speaking of safety, the water source access needs to be dependable both for the livestock manager and the livestock. Trudging through several inches of icy mud to a pond bank with a gradual slope can be difficult and dangerous for man and beast. Busting ice with an axe is a common practice in our area. I encourage you to implement a check-in system so you aren't stuck in a pond for too long before someone starts looking for you. Not only is it important to have large quantities of this nutrient available for your livestock, they also need access to clean water at all times. Animals will drop hay pieces, saliva, dirt, and feed into the water as they drink. This debris will develop bacterial growth, so be sure to clean waterers often. I encourage you to check into water tests through the extension offices if your livestock are drinking from a well or a pond. Testing this water periodically will give you the full picture of their mineral intake and confirm the water is safe to drink. For more information on watering systems or water tests, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties, with your K-State Research and Extension report. Coyotes are the number one predator of livestock in Kansas and in most of the western United States. In general, individual coyotes will range over areas of about 10 to 25 square miles, and those ranges usually overlap to varying degrees. Kansas coyotes are accustomed to human odor. They are active primarily at night, but may venture close to houses even in broad daylight if terrain or cover are adequate for concealment. In Kansas, coyotes normally go 
under or through fences whenever possible. However, they are capable of jumping or climbing over fences and will do so under some circumstances. Not all coyotes kill livestock. Those coyotes which are killing livestock are usually referred to as offending animals. It is desirable when using lethal control methods to direct those methods at offending animals. Of course, there is no way to look at any individual coyote through a rifle scope or in a trap and be able to tell whether or not it is an offending animal. However, in a damage situation, control methods can be concentrated in and around the damage area and along coyote travel routes to and from the area. When this is done, there is reasonable assurance that the offending coyote will be among the first few coyotes captured. Predation on livestock appears to bear some relationship to coyote's seasonal energy needs. Coyotes breed in February and have one litter of five to seven pups in late April or May. During and immediately following this spring whelping season, coyote energy demands increase rapidly as the parents provide food for the young. At this time, some coyotes turn to livestock as a readily available source of food. In late summer and early fall, another increase in coyote predation is usually noted. At this time of year, the food demands of the large and fast-growing pups may tend to be more than the ability of the adults to provide them with natural foods. Again, domestic livestock may offer an easily obtainable source of abundant food. This late summer increase in predation may also be related to learning or development of livestock killing behavior by the coyote pups. Winter losses of livestock to coyotes are generally lower than at other times of year despite the high energy needs of individual coyotes. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a David Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Now that we've covered general pesticides and herbicides, we can cover insecticides. Insecticides are used for the control of insect pests. Unlike herbicides, insecticides can also be applied to home pests. Insecticides are, in general, some of the most potent chemicals you can apply, so PPE and first aid requirements for exposure will be stricter than for herbicides or fungicides. Insecticides will vary in effectiveness depending on when they're applied in the pest's life cycle. A general rule is that the earlier in the life cycle you can spray pests, the more effective your control will be. However, this will vary from pest to pest, so proper identification is crucial when determining what and when to spray. Insecticides meant for garden pests can also destroy bee colonies, so it is important to keep bees in mind when spraying. Most insecticides will need to be sprayed on non-flowering plants, and some can be sprayed on flowering plants after sunset. Insecticides that are hard on bees should also not end up in water sources such as puddles. Herbicides can also affect bees, as well as fungicides. Whether herbicide, insecticide, or fungicide, to find a chemical's effect on bees, go to the Bee Pesticide Database from the University of California to determine if what you're spraying means that any additional precautions need to be taken. 
As with bees, insecticides can also kill off beneficial insects. Beneficial insects are insects that do no damage to garden or structures, instead targeting pests as predators. Ladybugs are the most well-known beneficial insect, consuming aphids on a number of garden plants. Other beneficial insects include lacewings, predaceous stink bugs, and parasitic wasps. Before going to spray bugs you found in your garden, confirm their identities to make sure you aren't accidentally trying to kill something that is helping keep pest populations low. Because insecticides rarely select what they kill, many gardeners will choose strategies from Integrated Pest Management, or IPM, in order to keep pest populations low enough to be tolerable. IPM focuses first on cultural and biological control, before moving on to chemical control if need be. Cultural control includes exclusion and plant selection. Exclusion is keeping insects from getting to the plants you want to protect. This could be through physical barriers or through diligent scouting before pest populations explode. Selecting plants with fewer pests will lower the amount of control you need to have in your landscape. Biological control is the aforementioned beneficial insect populations, as well as bacterial control methods like BT or Bacillus thuringiensis. When moving on to chemical control, biologically derived organic options such as neem oil and horticultural soaps will be less likely to harm beneficial populations while still eliminating the pests that make their way through cultural and biological controls. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Court Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.